Hello, my praying people. I'm so glad to be back with you this week in part two of our three-part series, Parenting People Who Are Deconstructing Their Faith. It's my prayer that through this series of podcasts, we as parents of kids that are walking through um, a faith journey that is um, confusing to us, upsetting to us, disturbing to us, will um, become something that we're not so afraid of. And um, that we will be able to, like I said in the first um, podcast, that we'll be able to take this walk with integrity, that we will be led by the Lord, and most of all, that we will just embody the person of God who is love. God is love, and um, that we will be that love in the world today in relationship to everyone, but most especially in relationship to those that we love the most who are our own children. So I'm looking forward to talking with you today about the things that um, perhaps the subtle ways, I'm calling them the twisted truths, that um, are effective in in, um, luring people away from the faith. And then I'm going to talk to us specifically as parents about how we absolutely must overcome our fear. I said in last week's episode that I'm baffled by the journey that my kids are taking. But when I remember the conversations that we've had, I realize that um, it shouldn't have been baffling to me that they've been talking to me all along the way, which goes back to something I also said last week, and that is that I thought I was hearing my kids that we were very good at communicating. But I think sometimes I heard them with the preconceived um, perspective, you know, that I had, the preconceived notion that they were um, as anchored in um, their faith as I was. And so I didn't put as much weight on what they were trying to tell me as I possibly should have, or I didn't slow down to really hear what was getting broken inside of them or what was confusing them or what questions they were asking when they were having these conversations. I don't know if this is making sense, but I think once I share an illustration of it, it will make sense to you. So one illustration, it's a very good one, um, is when my son was in high school and (coughs) he had a friend that was also a preacher's kid from a, a church in our community. And this friend would leave home dressed like a boy, but by the time he got to school, he would be dressed like a girl. And he was obviously um, dealing with gender identity issues and needing his parents to love him and accept him the way he was. But his parents were also understandably disturbed by his behavior and by his confusion. And um, they, instead of really, you know, handling this with compassion and I'm not even wanting to say what they didn't do or what they did do. I'm just going to share with you how my son befriended this boy and really became his friend. My son was very um, intentional about not being judgmental and about just loving him. And I think at that time in his life, my son was wanting 
um, to really illustrate the love of Jesus, the way he understood it is that there is no condemnation in Christ and that we are here to love people. And so he's wanting to love this boy. And because he was loving this boy, this boy confided in him and shared with him how what a difficult time he was having with his parents. Now his parents were taking him to counseling where they were, you know, praying the demons out of him and, and trying to make things right. And I don't, I don't, I just think it was a very painful, a very difficult situation. And as I look back and I think back about that conversation, my son was having a real hard time with understanding how the church could be like this and how people who love God and who follow hard after Jesus, who is all loving, how this could happen in their family. And in hindsight, I don't think that I answered that well. I think that this made me very uncomfortable. I know now that even the father who was a pastor is no longer a pastor. I'm sure there's a whole lot more layers to that story, and it's not mine to tell. I don't even know it. But I'm using that as an illustration of a time when my kids were talking to me about what was confusing and frustrating to them. And... um, when I now, you know, you see, you turn around, and you're like, oh, that's what was going on. I began to, to get it because um, I think now that when I see people who are deconstructing their faith, they didn't just get up one morning and decide to turn the world upside down and inside out. I mean, most likely they started wrestling with these discrepancies that they experienced between what they were learning about who Jesus is and this whole message of love that comes out of the Bible and then how Christians are behaving. And um, then they, they learned that they weren't the only ones noticing this discrepancy or asking these questions. And because we have such access to the Internet, I mean, isn't it great? I love having access. It's like having a library with you all the time. But, and they too have the library and, and they began searching and they realized that some other people were beginning to offer some answers to the questions that they were asking. And they were discovering that these people were not people who embraced Christianity. And um, in pursuing those ideas, they began to see the possibility of living out from under what they might have felt like was an oppressive religion wrapped up in condemnation and judgment. And um, I get it. If Christianity were wrapped up in condemnation and judgment, I'd want to walk away from it as well. The only thing is, that's the exact opposite of what Jesus is about. And so in this episode, I want to talk with you about the twisted truth that's being served as Christianity, the Christianity that leads to deconstruction. And then I want to tell you how you can get rid of your fear that your son or daughter might leave the faith forever. Father, I just ask that you would um, make some sense out of the ideas that are bumbling about in my head as I seek to share my heart in this extremely vulnerable subject of parenting people that are deconstructing their faith. God, I ask that this podcast would get in the ears of those that you know need to hear it. And God, ultimately, we invite you to work in us as you're working in our kids and um, shape us into the image of Jesus himself, who is the embodiment of your love for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
First, I want to expose or talk about for a minute this, what I'm calling twisted truth. Um, there were two trees in the Garden of Eden, and it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then the tree of life. Of course, there were more trees that were just trees, I guess, bearing good fruit <laughs> in season and out of season. But Adam and Eve were only forbidden to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They were welcome to eat of the tree of life and any of the other trees. So long as they chose to trust God and his authority in their lives, they were living their best lives. They were in harmony with each other. They were in harmony with the garden that God created to be exactly what they needed in order to live their life fulfilled and complete. And they were in harmony with him. And all of it was working together in the way that I believe every human being wants things to work. And that's in harmony and in beauty and synced up and aligned and all of it connecting and, and being as God created it to be from the get-go. But when Adam and Eve chose to see God through the eyes of the serpent <clears throat> as a God who was keeping something away from them, um, something good, a God who wanted them to remain in the dark, one who wanted to lord over them and rule over them. When they, when they were entertaining that possibility and that thought, then you know the story in Genesis chapter 3. They ate from the forbidden tree, and the scripture says their eyes were open. But was this a great awakening, or was this a great blindness? Were their eyes opened? Or were their eyes shut? Notice what they saw with their new vision. It says that their eyes were opened and they immediately saw their own nakedness. So the first thing they saw when their eyes were open was shame. They, they noticed that they were naked. Prior to that, they didn't even think about it. So when their eyes were opened, they saw their own nakedness. They sensed the sense of condemnation. And then very soon after that, they heard God come in, in, in the garden. And so they hid. Why? Out of fear of being discovered. So now that their eyes are open, they're experiencing nakedness, condemnation, self-consciousness, fear, and the reality of separation. A separation between them and God. And then as they're giving their excuse for what happened in the garden, you can see the separation they're already feeling with each other as Adam blames Eve and Eve blames the servant. And all this blaming and shaming begins to go on. So the very things that the devil is telling people belongs to Christianity came into being through the serpent's lies, or rather through his twisted truth. Through him saying to Adam and Eve, God's holding out on you. There's more. You want your eyes open, so eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil, so that your eyes can be opened. And once they did eat of the tree of knowledge of the good and evil, what they experienced was all negative. It was, uh, it was condemnation and fear and separation and shame. Unfortunately, too many Christians, and me included, have been guilty of living lesser than who we genuinely are. You see, we, we then, Jesus came back 
to bring us back to the place where we are released from the the condemnation, the separation, and the the nakedness, the self-consciousness, all of that that came with the eating of the tree of good and evil. Jesus came back to make right when he died to reconnect us to God. He gave his own innocent blood so that we could then be bathed in his death. We could die with him and then we could be raised to walk, what the scriptures say, in a brand new life. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And in this newness, we are walking with no condemnation, with no shame, with no um, no sense of self-consciousness, because now we are wrapped up in the love of God, in the connection with God, with the completion that God brings to our lives. And maybe, and I believe that I did, I think it's what I was trying to describe in last week's episode, um, I did experience that, that moment of salvation. It was all the wiping away of all of that that happened and being like completely immersed in this new and amazing place of just pure love. Like no matter what I would ever do, it would never be marred. God was accepting me just as I am without one plea, you know? <laughs> And and in him, I was made complete again. But too many times, and this is what I was about to say, professing Christians, and me included, are guilty of then living lesser than who we are. We don't stay in that place. We, we get salvation, but we don't get the freedom that we have in Christ to live above the fray and unafraid of the storms. And too few of us live in the freedom in a way that makes it obvious to those around us. And so, people, our own children, children searching for release and reconnection with God, they look to the church. And, and that's where they ought to look, because the church claims to be the body of Christ in the world today. And when they can't find evidence of a place that is safe, a place that is loving, a place that is there where there's no condemnation and no judgment and no... Um, and no separation, when they can't find evidence of that there, then in their disappointment, they conclude that the church itself then must be the source of the problem. Then it must be the church are the ones that have created this atmosphere of judgment and condemnation and separation because it's so much a part of our story. You know, it's so much a part of, you have to understand that you're separated before you can understand that you need to be reconnected. And, and we teach that as part of the gospel message. And so the twisted truth that the devil does is say, well, they are the originators of that. Now, isn't that ironic when he's the one that was the originator of it? And the exact opposite is the message of the church. In fact, many of us would do well not just to memorize John 3.16, but to also add to it 3.17 when Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to judge the world. I came to save it. Not to condemn it, but to save it. But unfortunately, the message of Jesus is choked out by the lifestyles and the testimonies, the witness of those that are calling himself themselves by his name. And so the prince of darkness that begins to construct his own counterfeit Christianity. And so in his counterfeit Christianity, in, in what I'm going to call secular spirituality, these words are buzzwords. I told you I would talk about the trigger words, light. There's much speaking of light or enlightenment or being able to see what we couldn't see before, having our eyes opened. 
There's also love. Oh my goodness, love that is pure and undefiled where there's no condemnation and no judgment and where all things are even bad is good and good is bad and we just love without any really seemingly without any rules which has some problems in its own that we're not going to get into but then also connection that's another word it's being connected connected to the divine it's being connected and away from just the physical realm where the only laws that are working are physical laws but now you're connected to a spiritual realm where you go past what is physical and into the dimension that is spiritual and in this connection to the divine you find that the divine is not a person that you were separated from, but it is in essence, it's kind of like an essence that just permeates all in all. And it's the divine in you that's connected to the divine there. And there's just this beautiful connection of ourselves to the divine. Other words that are in this secular spirituality or tolerance, and which means total acceptance no matter what. Unless, of course, you claim to be a Christian where we need Jesus in order to have acceptance. Um, but other words are peace and joy, contentment, higher purpose, release and value. All of these words. All of these really good words. I've listened to podcasts and I've read blogs by people who are leading voices in the spiritual movement void of Jesus. And their ambition is to, and I'm going to quote right here, their ambition is to show you how to find your purpose so you can blossom into your highest self and embody your fullest expression on the planet. Doesn't that sound great? Like I'm, I, I'm about that. I want to show you how to find your purpose so you can blossom into your highest the highest self. I want you to understand who you are in Christ so that you can be light in a dark world. You see how similar, but just off that it is. And then there's a podcast by The Friendly Atheist who interviews people like Bart Campolo, whose father is Tony Campolo, the um, very popular pastor. And um, Bart and his dad, Tony, actually wrote a book together called Why I Left and Why I Stayed. And in a particular episode where the friendly atheist was interviewing Bart Campolo, this is what Bart said. There is a secular way to pursue goodness, and it is gloriously fun. Now, doesn't that sound attractive? A secular way to pursue goodness, and it is gloriously fun. And then there's a Born Again Again podcast that is um, hosted by a couple who left Christianity, and this is what they say. I feel awake and alive and able to make my own decisions. I feel free, more loving than ever, happy and creative. It seems as though a burden of guilt and shame has been lifted off my shoulders. I hear this and I read these things and I think what is not attractive about that? Most people who are leaving Christianity are leaving behind the twisted truth. That Christianity delivers condemnation, judgment, separation, and fear. The very things that are byproducts of what we call sin. This breaks my heart. The gospel is being smeared. And those of us who are watching from the front lines are wringing our hands in despair. In despair. I'm, I'm grieved, but I'm also convicted you see, for I've learned that I have embraced twisted truth as well. 
It's taken a whole lot of wrestling with God in these past few years for me to learn what I'm hoping to share with you. And it's the first time I've ever put it into words, so please bear with me. First, I want you to know that your fear and your frustration with your son or daughter is playing into the devil's plan. My own children told me this. In the midst of many of our conversations, one of them, probably both of them, have said it at different times. This was said, Mom, if you believe that God is sovereign and that you can trust him, what are you so worried about? Ugh. Nothing like being gut-punched by your deconstructing kid, right? But they had a good point. If God is infinite, if he is perfect and complete in every way, if he is sovereign... If the God we profess to have a personal relationship is the ruler of the universe, and if he loves me perfectly, like I have confessed and professed that I believe that he does, then what am I worried about? Fear is the byproduct of separation from God. Perfect love casts out fear. Isn't that what the scripture says? There is no fear in love. Now, um, let me try to explain this by sharing how God, the kind of the journey God's had me on in the last month or so to teach this to me. First of all, there's a book that's really um, popular amongst the people at my church right now called Don't Let the Enemy Have a Seat at Your Table, written by Louis Giglio. And our worship pastor, in fact, uh, gave me a copy of this book and just knew that I would love it. And I do indeed love this book. I I, um, Louis Giglio is teaching out of Psalm 23, and you know, you know, Psalm 23 is such a great psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Anyway, and it goes on to say, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And what Louis Giglio is teaching is that God literally, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the fray, in the midst of whatever it is that we've got going on, God um, invites us to come and feast with him because in the midst of whatever that is, he's got exactly what we need to succeed, but not only to succeed, but to have victory in our lives in that place. Victory over the enemy. You see, he's already given us victory over the enemy. And it's when we choose to sit at the table with him and eat from whatever it is that he has at his table that we are able to be kind of like the way I like to think of it is sitting there at the table. We're able to be like in your face, Satan, like in your face, because here I am when the battle is waging all around me and I'm just going to choose to have a sit down meal. I like to think of it with candlelight, all of the courses served by the Lord God himself who created the whole idea of taste buds in the first place. And right here in the midst of the fray, we're going to be satisfied with each other. That sounds beautiful, doesn't it? And I read it. Uh, I was tracking with Louis Giglio, and I was like, this is good. This is teachable good, you know? <laughs> but then, in the midst of what's going on with me and how much I love my children and what's going on in our lives, and I sensed the Holy Spirit, deep in my spirit, invite me to that table. He just said, hey, Leanne, come here. Let's, let's sit down and eat. 
And you know what I said to him? I said, I love you, Lord. And it looks good. But unless you set a seat for my kids, I'm sorry I can't eat with you. And then I said to him, kind of like what Adam said to, to him in the garden, it's these kids you gave me. You knew the mother heart I would have. You know, Adam said, it's Eve. She's the one who gave me the fruit to eat. And I said to God, it's these kids. Like, I, I didn't ask for this mama bear heart. It just got birthed in me with them. And, and these kids, I cannot have fellowship with you on this battlefield because you are not letting my children sit with us at this table. And I walked away. And what's interesting is, um, in my walking away, I still went through the motions to do the ministry that I'm called to do, to show up. Um, you know, I'm the prayer minister at the church, for goodness sake. <laughs> and my good church members, you guys who are listening to this, I'm sorry. I'm just telling it like it is. And, and I'm not saying that I didn't believe everything I've said and everything I've taught and all the times that I showed up during that month or so that I was... Um, uh, refusing the invitation of my father to come and eat with him on this battlefield. I still did, and I believed what I said when I said it, and the Holy Spirit is so good and so gracious, and he, he lets us show up and be used and not make a mess of things in the meantime. But personally, in my own personal life, and because of that, some things were suffering, some other work that wasn't happening and not getting done, and I, I wasn't being my best self because of this conflict that I was having with God because He had invited me to His table on this battlefield, and I didn't want to come. And um, because God knows how to speak to me in a way that uh, works, <laughs> And that's through the books that I read and the studies that I'm doing through His Word. I picked up for, I would say, for some reason, but it's because I know the Holy Spirit directed me to it, a Ted Decker book. And Ted Decker is, I found out, he lives right here in Nashville. I don't know him, Ted. If you ever hear this podcast, I am thanking you for your writing and you using it to the glory of God. But I picked up his book because it looked interesting to me. And I thought maybe I could get my son to do this book with me. It was um, designed to be done in 21 days. And so to my son, I said, would you please do this with me as a gift to me for my birthday? See, I'm making it easy for him. And I bought him the book and I bought me the book. And the idea was that we would do it together and we'd talk to each other along the way. And when I started reading this book, it's called The Forgotten Way. And it's 21 meditations on five truths that um, he is uh, presenting, that Ted Decker's presenting. It's a very good book. I highly recommend it. I am still digesting it. And I started it on September 11 on my birthday. And now it's like December the 16th, I think. But um, in this Forgotten Way book, Ted Decker makes the point. In fact, his statement at the beginning of every day's meditation is that there is no fear in love, that perfect love casts out fear. And I, if you had asked me, was it fear that I deal with, I would not have identified it as that. I would have been, because I had so um, justified what I was feeling. And so, you know, it was frustration. It was angst. It was, um, uh, I don't even know what. But it all boiled down to, long story short, it is fear. My my angst, my my frustration, my um, my unsettledness, it is all rooted in fear. 
fear about what's going to happen to my kids. My resistance to go into the table that my Savior and Lord has set for me in the presence of my enemies, my good shepherd, is was rooted in the fear I have that they're not there or that they won't be there or, or what, what might happen to them. And so anyway, this Forgotten Way book was very timely. I didn't even know it would be because I wasn't exactly sure what it was that he was going to say in the book. And along the way, um, he also, Ted Decker, starts talking about this table that is set for us. And then he also makes reference, and I meant to look it up, but I'm using my phone right now to make this recording, so I can't look it up on my phone, but I'll try to remember to do it and throw it into a blog post. But you remember the time when Jesus, he makes a tiny reference to this, but I want to expound on it. The time when Jesus was out on the lake and um, he and his disciples were going from one place to the other. And I've been on the Sea of Galilee. It's beautiful and it's big. And it's also nestled between like mountain ranges and things. And they say that storms can come up like at a drop of a hat. Like the wind can immediately blow and suddenly it's like torrential. I mean, terrible, terrible storms on this sea. And in this particular time, they were on the Sea of Galilee. The storm came up, but Jesus was so tired and exhausted, which shows us that he's divine and human, that he was sound asleep as the storm was going on. And his disciples are fighting the storms. They're fighting the waves, and they're having a rough time. And finally, one of them is shaking Jesus awake. And he says to Jesus, don't you care if we drown? And Jesus looks at him, and he says, why are you so afraid? And <laughs> when I read that part, I was like, well, duh. I mean, I know that doesn't sound very spiritual, but I mean, we're, we're in a boat that's about to turn over and we are mere mortals. <laughs> Why are we so afraid? Because we, we aren't, and here's the key. See, we're not seeing the fact that Jesus is in the boat with us, and we don't know yet what that means. We don't know that as long as Jesus is in the boat, even the storms are going to submit to him. Like, and, and that's exactly what he does. He goes, oh, ye of little faith, and he's kind of put out with them. And then he's like, peace, be still, and all the storm just ends. And, and I'm like the disciples. I'm just like, oh, my goodness. But see, it was the storm itself that gave the disciples the opportunity to be um, more intimately acquainted with what it means to be in a boat with Jesus. You, you see, we don't learn by what we're taught and told. Those, those stand as good, uh, as good little um, signposts. But we don't really know who God is until we experience Him for ourselves in the various storms of life that we go through. Even I wrote this in my book, Spiritual Warfare for Women. This is what I wrote. Every attack from the enemy brings with it a divine invitation from the hand and the heart of God to know by experience what love does. Well, Leanne, when you put it that way, it almost sounds exciting, doesn't it? <laughs> But, it, but you know, then the, then the storms come along, and you're like, not that. Like, not that. I don't, I don't. And sometimes, like I was saying to God when he invited me to his table, I don't, I don't want to know you in this. I want you just to fix this. And when we do that, when we, what kept me from sitting at the table with the Lord 
in the presence of my enemies. What kept me from being where I could have been to have everything I need for the battle I'm facing and to even be able to say in your face because I have figured out how to be victorious here because I am complete with Christ. What kept me from experiencing that was that my love for my son, my daughter, my people, my love and my attachment to my people was bigger than my love and my attachment to the Lord. There's another place, and Ted Decker makes a point of this, where Jesus says, unless you can hate your father and your mother, your sister and your brother, your son and your daughter, then you cannot be um, a disciple of mine. And um, he explained that it doesn't mean hate them, like, oh, I hate you. It means um, to be unattached, to let your attachment to them be lesser than your attachment to him. And um, that's a hard thing, but it is a doable thing. And it's more understandable and doable if you can understand it the way that Ted Decker kind of presents it. And I'm going to, oh, he's got so many things in here that I'd love to take out and like put in the order that would make sense in the situation I'm in. But I'm just going to read some of this and hope that it will, um, that it'll come together and make sense for you. Um He starts out this particular meditation by saying, we think of what troubles us in this life. As we think of what troubles us in this life, we will find one of two things at its root, both grounded in fear. One, a person or situation that has offended or threatened us, causing us to fear harm. Two, a person or situation that we are attached to that we fear losing. There is no fear in love, and yet we Okay, we're, we're recording again. I got cut off for some reason. I'm not exactly sure what is going on, but we're going to pick up where we left off. So I'm reading from Ted Decker's book about um, the fear that we have from our friends. And here's, here's what he has to say. In the same way that we cling to the need for protection from enemies, we also cling to the need for significance and affection from friends. This need is rooted in the fear of loss, which isn't true love. There is no fear in love. There is perhaps nothing more damaging than fear of loss masquerading as love. Such, quote, love only enables fear while true love remains in hiding. How can you love your husband or wife when you need them to be a certain way in order to feel secure? If they don't offer the security or honor you, or if they don't offer you the security or honor you think you deserve from them, you feel wounded. Wounding is what you fear. Then the one you loved becomes a monster in your house, and you feel compelled to either help them change to fulfill your desire for honor and security, or you feel compelled to protect yourself from them because they've become your enemy. Now, this doesn't mean you must subject yourself to the physical abuse of another. If necessary, remove your hand from that fire, but do so in love, not in fear or condemnation. Truly, most of what we call love is little more than addictive clinging. Now, moms and dads, listen to me. I'm not talking right now about the relationship between a husband and wife. We're talking about our relationship as parents to our children. 
Truly, most of what we call love is little more than addictive clinging. The affection of another person makes us feel good about ourselves, much like a drug that comforts and makes us feel secure. When that person fails us, we get angry at the one we thought we loved. To call your addictive clinging love is an error. As Jesus made plain, and he calls Jesus Yeshua, as Yeshua made plain, the true measure of love is how well you love someone when they dishonor you, not when they demonstrate love to you. True love is not provoked, nor keeps any record of wrongs, as Paul made so clear. There is no fear of loss in love, because love doesn't seek its own needs. This is why Yeshua insists that you must hold of no account of your closest relationships. In other words, you must hate or you must be unattached in your closest relationships. Hear him. If you do not hate, release attachment to or hold of no account, father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Some have said that Yeshua means we should love God more than we love others, but these aren't his words. It misses the whole meaning of his teaching and Paul's teaching as to the nature of love, which releases all expectation and holds no record of wrong. To hate here means to let go of all attachment and expectation. Do you hear that? To genuinely love your son or daughter right now means to let go of all attachment and expectation. Um, well, he talks about a romantic relationship again. I'm going to go ahead and, and read that because just it, it's relatable to what we're talking about with our children. Um, think about any romantic relationship you've ha had or have. Isn't it true that your partner holds you to account? They expect you to be a certain way in order to satisfy their desire for honor, completion, or significance. As long as their expectations are met and you love or honor them as they wish to be loved and honored, they are pleased. They have their drug and their addiction is satiated. But if you fail to meet your partner's expectations in some way, they feel dissatisfied or unappreciated or let down. At times, you will surely feel like enemies to each other. The same is true of your own expectations of them. Why do you feel so wounded when your partner fails you? Okay, I'm going to change it to our children. Why do you feel so wounded when your son or daughter fails you? Because you have placed your hope in them and they have let you down. You have inadvertently turned them into a God, thinking your relationship with them will save you. When they then fail to meet your expectations, your identity is crushed. You feel lost, abandoned, and unloved. You see, you are searching for your meaning and your identity in a relationship by holding those closest to you to account. And you are calling this love. Jesus says no. This is not what it means to follow the way of love in him. Rather, love them by holding them of no account and by expecting nothing in return. By turning the other cheek in your heart rather than resisting them just as you would an enemy. By loving them even if they persecute you. And if you must, remove yourself from the situation just like you would remove your hand from the fire. But do so in love without condemnation or holding a record of wrong. The love you find in yourself by following these teachings of Yeshua will stagger you. Your partner or your children do not define you in the least. 
You only share a part of this life with those persons, that person, and you do so as the son or daughter of God whose identity is firmly rooted in Jesus alone. So then be who you are. Love yourself and your neighbor and your enemy and your children and your partner in this way. Love your friends for you, now you are a friend of Jesus, your brother in whom your identity is made certain. Oh, good stuff. Imagine being accepted and truly loved exactly as you are at all times by your partner or friends, no matter what you do or don't do. Now imagine your acceptance of them in the same way and focus on this latter state of being. My friends, I have prayed and prayed for several years that my children would see Jesus, that they would know who Jesus is, that he would make himself evident to them. And it's been in this couple of weeks where I denied my Savior the privilege of allowing me to sit at his table with him and dine with him in the presence of my enemies that he revealed to me that I am the answer to my prayers in the way that I can love my children like Jesus loved me. No condemnation. No expectation. No disappointment. No uh, no need from them at all. And the only way I can do that is when I immerse myself in the fact that I am seated in the heavenlies with Christ, that I am in Him and He is in me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And now my ambition is to exercise what is true love, Love that takes into account no wrong. Love that has no expectations. Love that is genuine and complete and unadulterated. And ironically enough, exactly the kind of love that my children have been begging from me since they started this path of deconstruction. They were ahead of where I was. They saw and yearned for what I was blocked from seeing and experiencing and knowing because I was allowing my attachment to them, which was not love at all. It was self-love. I was allowing that to be bigger than my love for the Lord, my confidence in Him, my trust in Him, and, and my being able to sit at this table and feast with Him. Once I, once I read this stuff and once I realized that I had made lesser gods out of my love for my children, I had turned them into little idols that were separating me from God. I confess that and I let it go. And he's got some great prayers in here that help us to do that. He says, um, today, release your dependence on this master of your own making by holding it of no account. Only then can you love without expecting in return. Only then can you be free to be who you are as the son or daughter of your father. Only then can you be the body of Yeshua, the body of Christ, expressing true love on earth as it is in heaven. This is the will of your father, which you now share. So close your eyes and love the one who has let you down in any way. My friends, just do that. If you're driving, don't close your eyes. But for a minute, just love the one who has let you down. Remember when they were little children and they didn't even know what to do to do right or not do right. And, and you were never mad at them for disappointing you. It was just a part of being a child. Think about how much you appreciate that God still treats you that way. 
that he loves you and that you can never mess up so much that he would quit loving you and that he accepts you just as you are. And he's tender with you and he is kind and he is long-suffering and he is patient. Love the one who has let you down in any way. Release your need for your child to be any way other than the way they are. Let them be who they are, where they are. And then he says, do this for even one minute and you will have taken great strides in aligning to your eternal self, complete and risen as the son, the daughter of the father here on earth. And that, my friends, is enough for today. Thank you, my friends, for listening to part two in our three-part series of parenting people who are deconstructing their faith. I hope that by listening to this episode, you have discovered a little more insight into the heart and the mind of your deconstructing kids. But then I hope you also have been challenged to um, sit at the table with your Savior right here on the battlefield with your enemies. You see, the beauty of being able to feast (laughs) on the battlefield is that we truly can discover that Christ is in all and He is all. And we are in Him, He is in us, and we have everything we need. All of our needs are supplied by the glorious riches that God has for us. Um, and, and we discover that by letting go of our expectations, by choosing to align ourselves with the heart and the mind of God, and by becoming the embodiment of the love of Jesus. Oh, my praying people, if, if we would do this, I so believe that the prince of this present darkness would have a lot harder time of convincing people to embrace his counterfeit Christianity. Um, the secular spirituality, we would again be able to stake claim on the beautiful truths of what it means to be united with our Creator God. I'm not going to go on and on. I will wrap it up by encouraging you to uh, check out my websites at leannemccoy.com, L-E-I-G-H-A-N-N-M-C-C-O-Y.com. I'm going to be posting some partnership blog posts that will give you scripture references and um, a little bit more, maybe even some uh, links to these books that I'm mentioning. I also want to mention to you my own book, Spiritual Warfare for Your Family. I genuinely believe that this book itself will lay a great foundation for you as you continue to love your adult kids. And if you're listening to this podcast and have younger children as well, it's just a good, solid book on how to win the battles for your, for your families. Uh, Spiritual Warfare for Your Family. And then also I want to mention again the online course that might be a great way for you to jump into the new year. I would encourage you to participate in this course with some prayer partners or maybe even as spouses do this course together and commit to praying for your sons and daughters that are deconstructing their faith. It's called Praying for the Lost and it's a course I recorded with my friend Jennifer Kennedy Dean who has written way more books on the subject of prayer than I ever will write (laughs) and who left this earth far too soon for me, I'm sure not too soon for her. 
a couple of years ago, but we were privileged to get to do this course together. It's called Praying for the Lost. And you can uh, find this course on both my leannemccoy.com website. You can also find it on prayerclinic.com, my website there. So I'm excited for you. I hope that you are looking forward to having a Merry Christmas and some wonderful, wonderful time with your sons and daughters, your aunts and uncles, moms and dads, husbands and wives, and all the people that can drive you crazy. And I'm just praying that in each of those interactions, you are literally the um, presence and the fragrance of Christ in their lives as you just love them unconditionally. Father, we thank you for giving us this opportunity in our lives to be able to um, walk on the waters that are are, um, threatening to capsize our boat. God, we choose to get out of the boat and we choose to get out here on the waters completely trusting you and you alone to love our kids through us, not not around us, not outside of us, not in some mystical way, but literally through us in our genuine behavior toward them as we interact with them this holiday season. It's in Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen.